You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. New series called I Believe, and what we believe is really important. The belief statements that you and I make make a big difference in not only what we think and how we believe and then how we behave. And, and what I want to do is I want to help us stop compartmentalizing parts of our belief in God and really allow that to saturate us deeply so that we walk out and we actually are enacting our faith in Christ, our relationship with him, our connection with him today, that it's not just a head belief, but that it's a lifestyle, a heart action. And I was reminded this week of a friend of mine, uh, who, his name's Randy, and at 13, Randy gave his life to Jesus Christ. But at 17, he was beginning to, his body was filling out. He's beginning to understand his strength. His coordination was catching up with his body. And at this time in his life, it was a time where for years he had really kind of worshipped MMA fighters. He loved their arrogance. He loved just how strong and how trained they were. He loved that they were self-sufficient and they were feared and they could be violent in that way. And, and subtly in his heart, as he's understanding his own strength, he makes this decision. He says... I'm in charge of my own survival. I like that. I want to be in charge of my own survival. And so we wanted to train in those ways. At 24, a friend named Katrina, she gave her life to Jesus. But at 28, after a failed marriage and shared custody of a child, she wished she could have a do-over. But as she's 28 and has a child and she sees all these beautiful young ladies coming up. She's thinking that her chances at a second chance in love are pretty low. And so she starts saying, you know, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to start dating non-Christians. And one of her Christian friends came to her and challenged her decision. And she said, honestly, to her friend, she's like, listen, I'm, I'm just trying to survive. It reminds me of a guy named Chris, who after 15 years in the marketplace, really is worn down about where the line between faith and business meet. And he's been successful, but he looks around at the guys who cut corners, and he looks around at the guys who unapologetically amass wealth. And somewhere inside, he says, you know, I want to be like those guys. I would love to amass some wealth and just do it unapologetically, not have to apologize for it. In fact, he begins to tell himself this, that I don't want to be shorthanded if there are lean days ahead. And he begins saying, I'm in charge of my own survival. So he becomes one who just hustles, hustles after it. As a teenager, I don't know about you, but I think that there's more to life than just survival. Just surviving, right, is something that you and I try to do. We just try to keep up. We're just trying to keep our head above water. We're trying to make ends meet. We're trying to hold something together. And survival isn't really living. It's just existing. And we all deep down want something more in life than just survival. I remember as a teenager, I grew up in a family with two brothers. We had no sisters. And so when it came to dating, that was like espionage. Like, how do, what, how do girls work? How does this happen? And, and here I am, a Christian, but I'm looking around, and all like the guys who have the girlfriends are just mean. They're just mean guys. They're not nice guys. They're the bad boys. And, and in my era, I felt really caught between Duran Duran's Wild Boys and Brian Adams' Heaven. I just somewhere in the middle there, right? Like, I've got to choose. I've got to choose. Am I going to be nice? Am I going to honor God in my dating? Or am I going to do it like the rest of the world does it? And sometimes we feel like that, right? I mean, in the words of the famous theologians, the Jonas Brothers, (laughs) making the typical me break my typical rules, it's true. I'm a sucker for 
you. That's right. After all, isn't that what envy does? You begin to look around at what they have and what they do and how they work and the limitations they don't seem to have. And envy begins to work its way into our soul. But I truly believe to be fully alive, life has got to be more than survival. And here's why you need this sermon. Real life is experienced in relationship with your creator. The one who made you already has an intimate, first-hand knowledge, love relationship with you. But real living is in relationship with him. Intimacy with God is the counterweight against the fleshly desires and the stinking thinking in our culture. You need a relationship with God. So the devil, of course, wants to attack He wants to attack not just your present, but he wants to attack your future. He wants to attack your future and the lives of those that you influence. If you're a parent, maybe that's your children. If you are a young person, it is your future and the future lives that will be affected around you. And in this series, you and I are going to make some I believe statements. We're going to declare with God some statements that we believe come as principles out of Scripture. First of all, we'd say, I believe that life is more than survival. I believe the heart. It's more than a muscle. I believe in hope and freedom. I believe my life can make a difference. And I believe in the message of the cross. And we're going to look at these I believe statements over the next five weeks. A number of years ago, I was working at a dude ranch. This is in my college years. Working at a dude ranch for a summer in Colorado. And uh, beautiful mountains there, the Rocky Mountains. And out of the Rocky Mountains come these amazing granite outcroppings, uh, even domes that are just random areas that look a lot like half dome. You'd be surprised, but all of a sudden there's just this massive structure. How many of you in the room, you have hiked half dome? How many of you have made it to the top? How many of you have hiked to the base? A few more hands, right? I see that, right? It's intimidating. It's scary. My wife has done it once. She said, it's scary. And listen, this is to a a woman who, when we met, was hiking 14,000-foot mountains by herself. Okay, so she's saying, it's scary, it's intimidating, and and I get that. When I was working in Colorado for a summer uh, at this dude ranch, one of my days off, me and a friend said, man, let's go climb that dome. We're just wandering out in the wilderness. Let's just go climb that thing, see how high we can get. And of course, we're in tennis shoes. We don't have climbing shoes. We don't have ropes. We have like climbing gear. This is, you know, pretty, this is a while ago, and we didn't own any of that stuff, but we just thought, well, we'll just go up as high as we can, and then we'll just come down if, we, if it gets too hard. So we, you know, we get to the base of it, and you look up at this huge granite dome, and you're like, wow. But initially, there's like this broken off piece, and it's a fracture that works all, it's pretty easy. You just hold on to the handholds, move your feet, and you're moving up pretty high. We get about halfway up. And then from there on up, we're like, well, we've got to go higher, but it's getting steep. And it's getting to that point where, like, you're climbing, and you're looking at every little finger hold, and you're, like, every little place you put your hand, and you're watching where your feet are, and you're concentrating so hard. You know what I'm talking about? You ever done that where you start, like, your muscles actually start to, like, want to, like, shake? And you're, like, pushing, but we're, you know, we're pushing each other on, which is really dumb because we have no gear. But it's two guys, and that's what guys do. So we're just, we're going up, and as we're hiking, and I'm so focused, I'm so focused on what's right in front of me that I have no idea what kind of danger I'm in. I have no idea because I'm so focused on the handhold and where my toes are and what I'm holding that I have no idea that clouds have come over. 
I have no idea until it starts hitting me in the back that large raindrops from a Colorado thunderstorm are coming down and hitting the granite. And if you know one thing about granite, it's pretty slick. It's even worse when it gets wet. So here I am halfway up and I'm going like, oh my goodness, like not only am I in a precarious position, but I've got to start working my way down and now every handhold and every foothold I had is now wet. And we're thinking, this is it, man. <laughs> this might be my day. Maybe we're going to die, right? Have you ever found yourself in a precarious situation? Have you ever found your life on a slippery slope? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're so focused on the temporary that you have no idea what danger you're putting yourself and your life and your future in? But it's beginning to show up in your heart, the discontent of your heart. Fortunately for us, we took a long time and a way, immense amount of exhaustion and finally made it down. So relieved, wanted to kiss the ground, right, when I got off. But have you ever found yourself or your life on a slippery slope? If you have your Bible, open with me to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73, the author he begins writing, and I love this because the Psalms are a good picture into a person's experience. They are written expressions, and oftentimes some of them became songs, some of them just became writings, but they are written expressions of communication between a person and God, but the person's being very real. And one of the dynamics that happens in a Psalm is that a person will start off with their issue, their, their angst, their complaint, and over the course of the psalm, you see a change in the person because they're expressing it out and they come to a new perspective. Well, this is no different. So Psalm chapter 73, beginning with verse 1, the psalmist writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's the belief. I believe that God is good to Israel, and I believe God's going to be good if a person's pure in heart. And then he says, he begins into his experience, he says, but... As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Well, how? Why is he in danger? How has he done this? Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Can you relate? You ever sat there looking in envy? looking at other people, what they have and what they do and how they seem to have it together and you're hustling but you're not seeing the results like they are and you're just wondering like why? Well, maybe following God isn't the thing. Maybe, maybe that looks better than what I'm trying to experience in my life. And somewhere along the line, you and I begin to believe that health and wealth and happiness are the blessings that we deserve. And if we're not feeling, if we're not like feeling it and experiencing it, we begin to say, well, maybe, maybe there's something better out there. Maybe I ought to leave a life of dependence on God, and I ought to begin to look for this to keep surviving like everybody else. And that's what happens. Here's the problem. Envy seduces us to become the very thing we envy. Envy is seductive. Envy is distorted. Envy looks and says, I want what they have, or I am envious of their life condition, or their relationships, or their abilities, and I am looking at what other people have, and envy seduces us to become the very thing that we envy. What you envy corrupts you, and then it does something weird. It isolates you. So for example, 
It's not wrong to make money, but when you begin to allow greed and the envy of others and what they have become dictating how you handle your resources, when you become the source of your life and you stop depending on God as the source of your life, your dependence goes from being very relational with God to suddenly surviving on your own, and then it becomes arrogant, and then it becomes isolating. The more you have suddenly has you. You thought, I'm just have more, but the truth is it has more of your heart. It has more of your greed, and so envy begins to percolate into something called greed, and greed keeps you longer than you want to stay, and the only way to break it is generosity. But envy will never allow you to be generous as long as you're in that bondage. See, we envy the lives of people that seem to be free from consequences. You know the people I'm talking about, right? The people who can do whatever they want, they just don't seem to have a consequence. People who can abuse their diet and drink and their bodies and be promiscuous and do whatever they want. And they seem to have like zero consequences. You know the people I'm talking about, right? For those of you who, like me, asked our metabolism never to change and it disappointed us, right? And you look at that guy who all he's got to do is take milk out of his coffee and he loses 10 pounds. And you're like, how does that happen? I'm talking about that guy, right? The dude who, who, like, who like is just shady character, but he makes lots of money. I mean, I'm talking about the, the girl who just seems to have everybody adoring her, but you kind of know her personal life, and you think, she's pretty superficial. I'm talking about those people. You know the people I'm talking about. We think that we deserve an easier life, but that easier life will oftentimes lead us to isolation. It'll lead us to self-sufficiency. It'll lead us to arrogance. And those who gain wealth will find that things trap them and they are less likely to give as greed has a hold on them. In Psalm 73, verse 4, he goes on to talk about, well, who are these people? Who are the people that I'm envying? Who are the people? What are they like? And he says this, verse 4, he says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, that sin. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. And therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. It's like they're hanging on their every word. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. So the, art, the author, as he's writing, begins to describe what he's been seeing, what he's been envying, and can you relate? Doesn't it seem like, it just seems like other people like, they get away with everything. They can do whatever they want. Look at them. And you begin to see like the snapshot of their life. You're not seeing the whole movie of their life, but it all becomes about them. They are able to do this. They can do that. They do this. Their bodies, this and that. It's always them. And if you're taking notes, if I believe the lie that life can be all about them, envy tries to make life all about me. So if I begin to believe, look at them. Look at what they're able to do. And the truth is, we're looking at some things that are good things. It's good to be healthy. 
But we look at verse 5 and we find out that health becomes vain. It becomes vanity. It's not health any longer. It's vanity. Strength becomes violence. Private becomes hardened. Outspoken becomes threatening. Confident becomes arrogant. And the wealthy becomes greedy. But there's a byproduct to all those things. And when you and I look and we begin to allow envy through our eyes into our heart, we say, man, it looks like life is all about them. How nice that must be. Then envy is going to turn it and say, well, then life should be all about you. And as it's doing that, it's making you more arrogant and it's isolating you from relationship. Psalm 73, verse 13, this is his, his honesty. He just says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. He's just being honest. He's saying, listen, I mean, I see what they have. And I'm looking at the sacrifices I make to pursue a relationship with God. I'm looking at the sacrifices I make to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. And he's saying, maybe I've done all that in vain. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe following Christ isn't worth it. That's what he's saying. Like, I started to feel that. That maybe in vain I've kept my heart pure. Maybe in washed my hands in innocence. Maybe it doesn't mean anything. Maybe I should just be like everybody else. And then he says this really unique statement because he's honest. You felt that. I felt that. But he's being honest and he says this. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. What in the world is he talking about? Because right now he's writing. He's saying, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. He's letting it out. He is opening up. He's being honest about his feelings, and he's saying, surely that would be the case for me. But if I had spoken out, he's writing out right now. But if he began to vent it out, if he began to let it all out to everybody else, he's saying, I would have betrayed your children. This is a person in a position of leadership. Sometimes leadership is just influence. So if you let it all out, let me ask you, who are you influencing? Are there little ears that listen to things you say? When you're just letting it out? Are there people in the workplace who you just vent it out and you feel better? Maybe they don't. Or worse, maybe they begin to feel exactly like you did and make it bigger. You vented it out and it felt like a five. But after you vent it out, they own it and they magnify it and it becomes a ten. You got to be careful. Be careful of what you declare. Envy is owned and magnified by those around you. When you envy everybody else and what they have and everything else, then people around you will own it as you declare it and they'll magnify it. Again, parents, if you're just envious about things and you're just, you're just venting it out loud, you're just talking about it, and you got little ears who are listening to what you say, they begin to own that and they begin to magnify it. And sometimes it's not in the positive. Sometimes it works this way. They hear you venting. They hear you envying. They hear you not depending on God, but just being jealous of what everybody else has and what everybody else does. And as they begin to hear that, they make agreements in their heart. And sometimes our kids make this agreement. They say, I will survive better than my parents did. 
I'm not going to be like that. Maybe for them, they think that's pathetic. For others, they're saying, I will never let myself be in want. I will make enough so that I'm never in want like this person who is my parent or who's in leadership above me, and they're complaining all the time, and, and they begin to vent it out. And what happens in the heart of our children is sometimes, and the people that we influence, sometimes for them, they make an agreement with what you're saying, and then they magnify it. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if I had just vented out to everything that I'm feeling right here, my angst, I would have betrayed your children. The people over whom I have influence, I would have betrayed them. When you allow envy to dominate your life, and when you vent your envy out, what it raises in your kids is not a responsible young adult. What it raises in them is fear. They become raised in fear. And so they make agreements to say, I'm going to do it differently than my parents. I'm going to do it in other ways. And in the age of depression and anxiety, oh, listen, parents, teachers, young adults, other people, as we have influence around people with us, the, an age of anxiety and an age of depression, you and I have the opportunity to be the light. And being the light doesn't mean we're not real about our angst and our emotions. It just means we're real in the right place. That we vent that out to God as the psalmist is writing out his honest feelings. But we understand that we have the opportunity to bring the goodness of God to the people around us as we declare the goodness of what God's done to us. Psalm 73, he's feeling all this stuff. He's feeling all this angst. He's feeling all this envy. He's saying, maybe in vain I have kept my heart pure. And here's the turning point of the psalm. Look with me. At verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till, here's the turning point, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. And he begins to describe what is my standing versus what is theirs. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. So first he said, but it's for me, my foot had nearly slipped. When I nearly lost my foothold because I envied the prosperity of the arrogant, right, of the wicked. And now he's saying, no, no, instead of me being on a slippery slope, it's actually them. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you despise them as fantasies. And when my heart was grieved, when my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Listen, when you and I get involved in envy, it just leads to stinking thinking. We're like a brute beast. We're like an animal. We're senseless. We're ignorant. And we begin to vent out our envy. But the difference maker is that moment when you enter the sanctuary of God and the presence of God and his word and his worship. That's the time. That is the turning point. For so many, he says, uh, number four in your outline, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Church takes your eyes away from envy and puts them back on God. You say, why in the world should I gather in church every week? Because I guarantee you that you get assaulted by envy every week. It's just one of the main reasons. 
that we come together corporately to be reminded that I'm not alone, that there are other people who are working to keep their hearts pure, that there, there are other people who are just as tempted as I am, who are just as envious as I sometimes feel, but there is a God who created me and a God who loves me and a God who cares for me and a God who is my security when I've been reaching to other things that try to feel secure. That's why I come to church. It's to worship him, but it's also a recalibration of me and my heart because the world can make us senseless and ignorant. It can make us like an animal. And in a dog-eat-dog world, we need all the recalibration we can get that our eyes go off of everything and everyone else we've looked at and they come back to our creator and our king. So what happens? Verse 18 says that they're on the slippery slope, not me. Verse 19 and 20, he describes them as terrors, that their terrors, they are slipping, they are falling, and they are cast aside by God if they in an ongoing way reject God. That God loves those people who are wicked. He loves them with his love. He extends forgiveness to them, but they have to receive it. And if they don't, if they continue self-sufficiency, if they continue just looking and trying to survive, if they reject God ultimately, then they are outside the presence of God. Once they die, they are not in heaven with God. They are set aside, almost like a forethought or like a dream that when one awakes, they're set aside. I talked to a friend recently who said she'd been jealous of the seemingly perfect relationship she sees online. And she said, it's when I realize who I'm focusing on that my jealousy comes into perspective. Isn't that true of you? And of me, that we can get assaulted and we can get envious and our flesh can cry out all week long. But it's when I enter the sanctuary of God that my eyes are taken off of them and put back on him. That is a good moment. Psalm 73 verse 23, he talks about his condition. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? I mean, that's a great question, right? Who does a wicked or a lost person have in heaven? No one. If they persist in their wickedness, if they never come to repentance, if they never ask for forgiveness of their sins by God and enter relationship through Jesus Christ by faith, they have no one in heaven. When it comes time between heaven and hell, they got no one there for them. But look at what he's saying. He says, who have I in heaven but you? He's got God. And earth is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near who? Help me out here. Who's it good to be near? God, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So he begins to have this change of perspective. When he entered the sanctuary of God, he came to realize, no, I am fact and secure. I am stable, as we see that in verse 23 through 26. Verse 28, he says, but is for me. Do you realize that he's bookended his psalm? Verse 2, but is for me. My feet had nearly slipped. I almost lost my foothold when I considered the prosperity of the wicked. And now he turns around and he says, but as for me, and what does he say? It is good to be near who? God. 
Listen, envy is a gauge. Envy is an alarm. Envy is an indicator that you're living life on your own power. You're not living spirit-led at all. The more you and I envy, the less we are depending on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I just think you're trying to survive. The truth is, I believe that life is more than survival. So he says, I will tell of all your deeds. So in other words, instead of envying and venting and complaining, he's saying, I do have something to tell. I'm going to tell myself first, and then I'm going to tell other people. So myself first, I'm going to say, I'm going to tell of God's goodness to me. Who needs to hear that the most? I do. You do. You need to tell yourself. You need to remind yourself of the goodness of God. How does the psalmist end his writing? God, this is how you're good to me. I'm stable. I'm secure. They're the ones on unstable ground. And he begins to tell himself. And then he begins to tell others. Now I will tell others, God, your deeds. This is how you are good to me. I'll tell you what, when you begin to be thankful, when you begin to show gratitude, when you begin to coach yourself that way, envy loses its power. Anxiety loses its power. Depression loses its power because you're focusing on the goodness of God to you in gratitude. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. I was controlled by being ignorant and senseless, a brute beast. But when I entered the sanctuary, I took my eyes off them and I put them back on God. And he says, this is the key point. He says, it is good to be near God. Say that with me real quick. It is good to be near God. All right, let me try this side of the room. Ready? It is good to be near. All right, let's try this side. It is good to be near. I think they have you. Let's try the loft. Tell me out loft. It is good to be near God. Right on, yeah, give it up for the laugh here. That's good stuff, right? It is good to be near God. Declare it out loud. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Say it to yourself out loud. Not the other people, not other people, not other things, not what they have, but you're saying I'm making the decision not for everybody else. I'm making a decision for me. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I am with God. He is my guide. He will take me into heaven. He's the strength of my heart. But as for me, it is what? Good to be near God. Listen, Randy decided, I don't have to envy those MMA fighters. But as for me, he declared it. It is good to be near God. Katrina decided as a single mom that envy makes me ignorant, leads me to make bad dating decisions. But as for me, she says, help me out. It is good to be near God. And then we find that Chris, in business, he said, I see the isolation of people who gave everything to making money at the expense of their relationships or to lose their soul. And he declared, but as for me, help me out. It is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. Draw near to him. Come near to him today. Make that decision for yourself. It is good. Oh, it is so good for me to be near God. Where's the good place for you to be? Near God. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life for just a moment. Maybe God has just called time out in your life today and it's a good moment for you to be able to say, God, it is good for me to be near you. But some of you in this room, you're saying, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. How do you get close to God? How do you experience the forgiveness of your sin? How do you do that. And the way that you do that is God's done all the work through Jesus on the cross, that his death on the cross paid for your sin. And he offers 
life to you. But you must receive it. He's a gentleman. He doesn't force it on you. He doesn't do what you haven't asked him to do. He wants you to invite him into relationship with him. And so with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if today this is your moment where you know that God is calling you into relationship, then you just simply pray a prayer right where you're seated like this after me to say, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. My heart has been burning on the inside today because I know that I need you. I ask you to wash me as white as snow. I believe that your death on the cross canceled out my sin. And now I want you to give me a new heart and begin a relationship with you because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, if you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand? Your head's bowed, your eyes closed right over here on the side. I see you there, all the way in the back. Just raise your hand up. You might be in the loft. My friends will see you up there, all the way in the back. That's awesome. Greatest decision you could ever make. You're saying, but it's for me. It's good to be near God. I'm so tired of doing it on my own. Christians in the room, those who've already at some point in your life, you said it's good for me to be near God, and you asked Jesus into your heart. You gave your life to him, but maybe along the way today, this message is spoken to you because your eyes have been on everything and everybody else. Maybe nobody around you even knows it, but you know it. And today, would you just declare between you and the Lord that it is good for me to be near God? Would you just invite him to be close to you? He is so available. He's been just waiting for you and I to step toward him. Father, even now, as we pray, we admit that sometimes we become senseless and ignorant. Sometimes we make decisions that are against you because we're just trying to survive. And Lord, would you just forgive us today? We thank you, God, for opening our eyes and our hearts to the reality that the good place to be is near you. And so, God, we want to make right decisions to live life your way. God, we want to do things how you tell us to do them. And the good place and the place of thriving is with you and near you. So God, we love you. We thank you for you calling those to yourself today who haven't known you before. God, we give it up for you. In Jesus' name, together we pray and we say, amen. Will you give it up for what God's doing in and through us? Amen. Will you give it up for what God's doing in and through us? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.